Dear and Venerable Sir, I am much indebted for your kind letter of February 29th, and for your valuable volume on the English Constitution. I have read this with pleasure and much approbation, and I think it has deduced the Constitution of the English nation from its rightful root, the Anglo-Saxon. It is puzzling that so many able and learned men should have failed in their attempts to define the origin of the English Constitution correctly. It should be no surprise, then, that Paine, who thought more than he read, should have credited the great authorities who have declared that the will of Parliament alone is the Constitution of England. Francois Morbeau, before the French Revolution, observed to me that the Constitution of France was simply the Almanac Royal. Your derivation of the English Constitution from the Anglo-Saxons seems to be made on legitimate principles. Having driven out the former inhabitants of that part of the island called England, they became as if they were the original inhabitants and your direct ancestors. They doubtless had a constitution, and although they have not left it in a written formula that we may look to for specifics, they have left fragments of their history and laws from which the contents of their constitution may be inferred with considerable certainty. Whatever their history and laws show, what was practiced must have been done with approval, and we may presume that which was not practiced was not permitted under their constitution. And although this constitution was violated and set at naught by the Norman conquest, yet force cannot change right. They consistently demanded a restoration of their Saxon laws, which shows the Anglo-Saxon laws were never relinquished by the will of the people. In the back-and-forth struggle for these ancient rights between the English and the lines of Plantagenet, Tudor, and Stuart kings, there was sometimes gain and sometimes loss, until the final reconquest of their rights from the Stuarts. The expulsion of the Stuarts broke the thread of pretended inheritance by the kings. It extinguished all royal usurpations, and the English nation regained all its rights although in their Bill of Rights they only specifically reclaimed some of their rights. The omission of the others in the document was no renunciation of the right to exercise the rights not listed. New kings received no rights or powers but those expressly granted to him. It seems to me that the difference between the Whigs and Tories of England is that the Whigs deduced their rights from the Anglo-Saxon source and the Tories from the Normans. Hume, the great apostle of Toryism, says in so many words that in the reigns of the Stuarts, quote, it was the people who encroached upon the sovereign, not the sovereign who attempted, as is pretended, to usurp the power of the people, unquote. He argues that the Norman usurpations and abuses were not abuses at all, but the rights of the Norman kings. He goes on to say that, quote, the commons established a principle which is noble but specious, an idea which is proven wrong by history and experience, the idea that the people are the origin of all just power, unquote. And where else will this degenerate son of science, this traitor to his fellow men, find the origin of just powers, if not in the majority of the society? Will it be in the minority, or in an individual of that minority? Our revolution commenced on more favorable ground. It presented us with a blank slate on which we were free to write what we pleased. 
We were not required to search into musty records, hunt down royal parchments, or investigate the laws and institutions of a semi-barbarous ancestry. We appealed to the laws of nature and found them engraved in our hearts. Yet we did not avail ourselves of all the advantages of our position. As colonies, we had never been permitted to exercise self-government. When forced to assume it, we were novices in its science. Its principles and forms had entered little into our former education. We established, however, some, although not all, its important principles. The constitutions of most of our states assert that all power is inherent in the people, that they may exercise it by themselves, in all cases to which they think themselves competent, as in electing officials both executive and legislative, serving on juries that make decisions based on both fact and law in all judiciary cases. The people of our states elect their own representatives, freely and equally chosen. It is the people's right and duty to be at all times armed. The people are entitled to freedom of person, freedom of religion, freedom of property, and freedom of the press. In the structure of our legislatures, we think experience has proved the benefit of subjecting questions to two separate bodies of lawmakers. In constituting these, some mistakes have been made. Some of these legislatures have made one or both of their houses the representatives of property instead of persons. They could accomplish this double deliberation without violating true principles of government, either by increasing the age of officers in one body or by electing them according to population and mixing them between the chambers in order to break up all cabals. Virginia, of which I am myself a native and resident, was not only the first of the states, but I believe I may say the first of the nations of the earth, which assembled its wise men peaceably together to form a fundamental constitution, to commit it to writing and place it among their archives where everyone should be free to appeal to its text. But this constitution was very imperfect. The other states, as they proceeded successively to write their own constitutions, made successive improvements and several of them, still further corrected by experience, have by conventions still further amended their first forms. My own state has done well so far with its first draft, but it is now proposing to call a convention for amendments. Among other improvements, I hope they will adopt the subdivision of our counties into wards. Our counties are about 24 miles square. Wards should be about 6 miles square. It would be like the system of King Alfred of the Saxons. In each of these wards might be 1. An elementary school 2. A company of militia with its officers 3. A justice of the peace and constable 4. Each ward could take care of their own poor 5. Their own roads 6. Their own police 7. Elect within themselves one or more jurors to attend the courts of justice 8. They could hold elections in their small units. Each ward would thus be a small republic within itself, and every man in the state would thus become an active member of the common government, transacting in person a great portion of the ward's rights and duties. He would be subordinate indeed, yet important, and entirely within his competence. The wit of men cannot devise a more solid basis for a free, durable, and well-administered republic. With respect to our state and federal governments, I do not think their relationship is correctly understood by foreigners. 
they generally suppose the states are subordinate to the federal government, but this is not the case. They are coordinate departments of one simple and integral whole. To the state governments are reserved all legislation and administration and affairs which affect the citizens of that state. To the federal government is given powers regarding foreigners or the citizens of other states. These functions alone are the responsibility of the federal government. The one is the domestic, the other the foreign branch of the same government, neither having control over the other, but control in its own sphere. There are only one or two exceptions to this partition of power. But, you may ask, if the two governments should claim each the same power, where is the common umpire to decide ultimately between them? In cases of little importance or urgency, the prudence of both parties will keep them away from using their powers in a questionable way. But if the dispute can neither be avoided nor compromised, a convention of the states must be called to ascribe the doubtful power to that government which they may think best. You will perceive by these details that we have not yet so far perfected our constitutions as to make them unchangeable. But still, in their present state, we consider them changeable only by the authority of the people. This is accomplished by a special election of representatives elected for the express purpose of amending the Constitution. But can they be made unchangeable? Can one generation bind another and all others in succession forever? I think not. The Creator has made the earth for the living, not the dead. Rights and powers can only belong to persons, not to things, not to mere matter, unendowed with will. The dead are not even things. The particles of matter, which compose their bodies, are now of the bodies of other animals, vegetables, or minerals of a thousand forms. To what, then, are attached the rights and power they held while in the form of men? A generation may bind itself as long as its majority continues in life. When that has disappeared, another majority is in place, holding all the rights and powers their predecessors once held, and they may change their laws and institutions to suit themselves. Nothing then is unchangeable but the inherent and unalienable rights of man. I was glad to find in your book a formal contradiction of the judiciary's usurpation of legislative powers. For judges have usurped in their repeated decisions that Christianity is a part of the common law. The proof of the contrary which you have adduced is incontrovertible. You argue that the common law existed while the Anglo-Saxons were yet pagans, before they had ever heard the name of Christ, or knew that such a character had ever existed. But it may amuse you to know when and by what means they inserted this into the law. The misunderstanding comes from a mistranslation of the words ancient scripture into holy scripture. The case that all the subsequent court cases cite happened in 1458. All the other cases cite this case for their legitimacy, a case where the decision was based on a mistranslation. I defy the best-read lawyer to produce another script of authority for this judiciary forgery. And I might go on further to show how some of the Anglo-Saxon priests interpolated into the text of Alfred's Laws, the 20th, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd chapters of Exodus, and the 15th chapter of Acts, the 23rd through the 29th verses. But this would lead my pen and your patience too far. What a conspiracy this, 
between church and state. I must still add to this long and rambling letter my acknowledgments for your good wishes to the uni university we are establishing in this state. There are some novelties in it. I'm glad you approve that we will have a professor of principles of government. The department will be founded in the rights of man. I'm sure you will approve that we have an agricultural department and one of the Anglo-Saxons. Our students will learn of their free principles of government. The volumes you have been so kind as to send shall be placed in the library of the university. We currently have a person in England sent for the purpose of selecting some professors. Mr. Gilmer of my neighborhood, I recommend him to your patronage, counsel, and guardianship against imposition, misinformation, and the deceptions of partial and false recommendations in the selection of characters. He is a gentleman of great worth and correctness, my particular friend, well-educated in various branches of science and worthy of your confidence. Your age of 84 and mine of 81 ensures us a speedy meeting. We may then commune at leisure and more fully on the good and evil which, in the course of our long lives, we have both witnessed. In the meantime, I pray you to accept assurances of my high veneration and esteem for your person and character. Thomas Jefferson